My name is John Barron, and welcome to Get Smart About People and the Workplace by Squid Zoo. Today's guest is Rolando Bailly and Mindy Garrett. We're going to talk about working remote. We're going to talk about nature. We're going to talk about bringing nature into the office. We're going to talk about what people value the most. We're also going to talk about millennials. We're going to talk about our parents. We're going to talk about crypto. We had this really great conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it. So sit back and welcome to the show. You and I got introduced because I was told that you were into biophilic design and when I started talking to you, I realized that we had a lot of common interests in, in our approach toward the office. Please give us a little bit of background on what got you to where you are you know, today and your involvement in Dell, which was very interesting. So I guess let's start with my involvement with Dell. I, I was with Dell for 11 years. Five of those years, I was in sales for Latin America. And six of those years, I was responsible for the Worklight initiative at Dell. And my job was to change the culture of Dell so it would be one more of a flexible working culture and make working from home okay. And this was back in 2004 when I started this journey with Dell around work life. And it was the one thing that I realized because I, I transferred from Latin America sales, being a, an account executive for sales into a global diversity role, which was under a global HR. So I, I made a kind of a transition from sales to HR. But in that process, one of the things that I learned was that the one thing that was the most inclusive of all of our, all of our employees was time. People needed more time. It didn't matter if you were male, female, it didn't matter if you were black, you know, Hispanic, white. It just didn't matter. Everybody wants more time. And managing time is very difficult, I think, amongst most people, you know, because we've just got so much on our plate. So we realized that, you know, by using the technology that Dell built, which are, you know, mobile technology, that we were able to, you know, have people work anytime, anywhere. And that was the whole purpose of technology was to enable productivity. And if you could enable productivity when people were able to be their, their most effective, which could be at home, which could be on a trip, it doesn't, you know, I seemed to get a lot of work done when I was on a plane. So, and again, that was, that was because I was focused and I had, you know, laptops. So if we were enablers, Dell was an enabler, not only with technology, but also in what we were trying to accomplish with uh, transforming our culture. My job was to go sell, even though I was in HR, but sell the concept of flexible working, working from home, that kind of stuff to a culture that was very much a go-to-the-office type of culture. And Dell at the time, and still does, but Dell at the time had over 100,000 employees. Now with acquisitions, it's probably close to 130,000 employees, maybe even bigger. But at the time, all those people were commuting every day to and from an office for the most part. And it wasn't the most effective thing to do because also Dell had declared that it wanted to be the greenest IT company in the world. And to be green and have all these people, average people you know, driving, having a 40-mile commute or a 40-minute commute to and from the office every day was just, you know, that's not very green. It's a lot of uh, emissions and it causes more traffic. And, you know, the, the list of all these things are, are that going into an office causes as far as time waste. Most people take two hours to get into the office, having the time they get ready to the time they actually arrive, but that's unproductive time. No, yeah, it's it's stress, isn't it? Let's face it, traffic is not easy, especially here in, in Austin. Yeah, and the great thing about this initiative that we were, that eventually be called, became called the, the Connected Workplace Initiative was that it was a global initiative. And as my job was to go sell this to the culture, to the leaders and the leadership of Dell, kind of became known as the Work Life Guy and partnered with Facilities, which is our first big partner. And Facilities realized that, hey, you know, we're not using our office space that efficiently. So if we're able to have a portion of our workforce that rotates in and out of the office two or three times a week, we can more efficiently use the space and reduce the amount of space that Dell actually needed to operate a business. So in that, there was huge cost savings from and just to what where I saw the biggest impact is when I was able to calculate the ROI, the return on investment, and all the different ways that Dell could save money by implementing flexible work, whether it be hard costs like immediate savings you could see from facilities or soft costs like productivity. And productivity was actually the biggest winner. We made we would have made more money on productivity and in, improvement to productivity because most people on average were turning that commute time into productivity time. So while they they got time back for themselves. They, they reinvested 50% of that two hours they got back into the company.
does a company was actually gaining in productivity and employees were actually happier because they didn't have to go into an office environment every day and they could spend more time with their with doing whatever they wanted to, whether it be their family or going to the gym or whatever, they got some time back. And Dell ended up getting um, not only cost savings, but happier employees and play engagement went up about 12% globally and 20% in the U.S. in the course of us launching that, that this look-like initiative. And it was a big game changer, especially now in the time of COVID, that they already had, that Dell, for example, already had work life, 10 years of work life and flexible working, remote working, distributed work, all kinds of names on there, but that they had 10 years of already being built into culture. So when something like a pandemic hits like COVID, they were really prepared and it wasn't a big switch or a big transition for employees to work from home full time um, as needed to in whatever locations they were at or around the globe. So change really, and it made a huge difference, not only from a cost savings to Dell, from facilities and, and everything, but employees were actually happier. I still have friends come up to me 10 years later going, hey, thanks to you, you know, I get to work from home a little bit more. I get to spend more time with my family. I, I, you know, I, I'm very proud of what we did back then um, when we launched in 2010. Which gets back to people will never forget how you make them feel, right? Now, here's a, here's a good question. Um, these metrics, how do you de- how do you uh, determine people are more productive? How do you determine that? How does that? How do you get that metric out of a company? How do you you know prove that there's an ROI? Great question. And basically, I hired a company to re-engineer, basically reverse engineer productivity metrics and all kinds of metrics that other companies were saying that they were gaining from remote working, distributed working. For example, AT&T uh, showed a huge boost in productivity. So we went and figured out how did they calculate their productivity and made that calculation for our numbers, right, uh, with Dell. And when we applied that same formula to Dell and, and did that, you know, facilities costs are pretty easy to achieve. Right? There's a cost per head per, per square foot, right? And so they were able to say, well, if we use more square footage, or less, you know, or we have less employees coming into the office on a daily basis, that means each one of these cost centers spends less money per employee per foot, and they could re redesign the office space. Um, and so we basically went and found industry leaders that had had good metrics and we went and figured out how they how they measured that and then applied the same measurement. And we also did some anecdotal stuff, like we 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 did a lot of pilots. And we had, uh, for example, a sales team, an inside sales team would, uh, we did a pilot on them for a month and they tracked their time. And what we found was that if they ended up saying, hey, we got two hours that we're not commuting back and they were actually working an hour more out of that two hours. So they were actually putting one hour more into the workplace that they didn't have before because they were wasting a commute. And they were happier because they got half of that commute time back for themselves. So we're able to say between 50 to 60% of employees or of of the time that employees got back, they reinvested it back into productivity for the company. It was a big win for the company because the other thing too was that employees, because they didn't have to come and spend money every day at lunch and, you know, that all the gas that it takes, the gasoline and that it takes to go to and from the office, they were actually pocketing $1,200 a year on those types of costs. So, the employees were getting a raise without actually getting a raise. They were saving more money because they weren't spending that on gas and food and a normal cost that they would on a commute or when they're commuting to and from the office. And they got an hour back of their time and they were more productive and they were happier. And it was a win-win all the way around. And Dell reduced its carbon footprint because they didn't have so many employees coming in and they reduced the number of buildings they had. It was just a huge win all the way around. I call it the triple win, right? Employees win, business wins, and the environment wins. You know, it's really not that hard to go back and calculate how these other companies did it. The hard part was convincing the some of the executives that these are real costs and you have your soft costs. And we got a lot of pushback on productivity. And productivity is hard to measure when you're not building a widget, when you don't have, a, you know, so many products per hour that you're pushing out when it's, when it's knowledge. But we were able to use the data um, that we learned from other companies that we're doing it that we benchmark from and apply the data that we were learning from our own pilots and it corroborated very well. It's pretty interesting because I've always heard that when it comes to the upper level management, if it doesn't fall into a spreadsheet, then they don't know how to gain that information to make any judgment. That's what we did. Two and a half times a yearly wage to replace an employee. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of effort that impacts the culture as well. Yeah, so when you have... 
when you have happier employees, that means they're turning over less. I definitely think that customer retention would be one of those metrics that you could assume that people are happy because if they're you're retaining people, then that must mean something. And that has to do with everything else. It's really tough. I mean, a, a big company like Dell can hire an external consulting firm or an expert firm to come in and put a great presentation together for you and show you how you're saving money or how you can save money. But, you know, the real question is, is, is how, how can we explain it to some of these smaller companies that, uh, Probably can't, you know, probably can't afford or don't really want to make the you know, expenditure to find that out. Well, the good news is when I did this data collection and benchmarking and pulling together all these analytics so we could use it to convince not only the right thing to do for employees, but the financially right thing to do for the company. The good news is, is that since then, that was 10 years ago. Um, when we actually launched it, actually started working on this project 15, the data and the analytics that are there, you can easily benchmark and you can go in and create your own spreadsheet. In fact, Cisco, for a while, I don't know if they still do, they had a calculator around, they'd be able to calculate around um, how much money companies can save by using video teleconferencing and remote working versus face-to-face that getting on a plane, right? So. There are companies that have already now built this, and it's more mainstream now. It's had 15 years ago mainstream, whereas we had to build it 15 years ago because it didn't exist. The data's out there now, and the calculators are there. So if you look at, you know, Google um, remote working calculator, um, something like, you know, something along those lines, you should be able to find some way that anybody can calculate. Oh, for an, an employee group of 10 that has a thousand or five thousand square feet of space, there's you know, here's the potential that you have. So I definitely think that data is available out there. Now Mindy, um, you're at Cisco, so I'm sure you had some of the similar experiences that he had uh, with Dell with people working at home. But then also you, you started your own business and I don't know how many people did you have working with you at the time? At the time we we only had five to seven at a time. We were just we were a startup mode. What you find is it was the interesting challenge with five to seven people because I mean you, you certainly every business has I guess every new business has its honeymoon period where everyone's just like you know damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. But um, how did you deal? Did you get to experience any uh, employee issues that you thought related to uh, productivity? Not so much to productivity. I think that there was there was at least one person on the team that had some pretty strong ideas and wanted those to be implemented at times, that was that was challenging, but it was a great experience. I would do it again. And, and, and Mindy's startup was very much a remote working startup, mm-hmm. so employees were remote. Yeah. So she was able to use the technology that's available to us now, the video conferencing technology, and that's how she was able to build a team and run a business and do it from, you know, her own home, basically. Yeah. You know, and, and she did go into, uh, you know, some of these business incubators for a while, you know, co-working sites that were business incubators and that kind of stuff. And she spent some time in there and also, but for, for the most part, she was running the business out of her home. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so tough because I have a small business. We have about 10 boys trying to make them feel comfortable, trying to, get them energized to do their work, trying to make sure that the work that they're putting out is of high quality. You got, you know, you got a lot of things that you have to consider. The first thing for me was, is, okay, can we do this? And the next part of it is getting the accounting done. And then after that, manage the, manage the people. And then there's one other thing that you really don't learn too easily. That's the psychology part. Well, and I would kind of say that the culture and, and how how you want your company to be. And do you, are you going to be one of those that, that's going to have naps and stuff like that? We, we, I had that with one of my companies. It's, that culture is so important, and it's something that needs to start in the beginning. You know, and, and I hear a lot of people talk about culture, but I'm not sure that everybody understands what culture is. I mean, I hear that I, I almost feel like culture is used as a branding, but I don't know how much if they really subscribe to it. Does that make sense? It does. I think of it as a way of being where people kind of gel. They come together and they get on the same path. And it doesn't mean that they're all saying the same thing, but they all know that this is where we're trying to get to, and they're all bought into that to that idea, ideation. You know, I, I read this book by uh, 
an Indian called Goat Rat. And it was, it's, it's not by chance. I believe it's the name of the book. And it was kind of interesting because it was, it was written about business process, but it was written in the form of a novel. It, the story starts out that, um, you know, David goes to work one day. He's the general manager of the, of the plant and someone's in his parking place and that kind of bothers him a little bit. And he goes up there and they tell him that he basically has, uh, like 90 days or six months to get the company in the black or in this small town that that this company basically employs, you know, like 15 to 20 percent of the of the town. Uh, this company's going to shut down, and and it's very interesting how through that whole process that you that there there were little things like, for example, um, the the bean counters up at the corporate office. They had a robotic machine that produced so many parts a day, and they were so hell bent on making sure they were producing those that number of parts every day that. Uh, they had to get a report on a weekly basis of how many parts were being made. The interesting thing was it was causing them to have an enormous amount of stock, which was hurting their, their bottom line because they had inventory that wasn't moving at the same rate of the finished orders. And so this, this, uh, this caused, a, you know, it was a process problem. And, and he, and he, during this process, uh, in this novel runs into his, uh, math teacher at the airport. And then gets his number and calls him throughout this whole novel for advice. But one of the interesting things was that he mentioned, he explained the, pro the process of a company, the input-output, is not too much unlike having, uh, you know, like Cub Scouts, a, a whole, you know, like 17 Cub Scouts, and you're walking them in the forest. And when you start out, the line's rather tight, and, you know, everyone's close together. And then all of a sudden, a few minutes in, into, the, into the hike, the line is, is completely broken up. Uh, it's jammed up in areas. It's you know spaced out in other areas, and and you're losing track of all the Cub Scouts. And it's not because of the first person, and it's not because of the, of the last person, but it's because of everybody. And and that was pretty interesting, you know, to me to hear something like that. And I think corporations, you know, do this a lot, uh, implement very specific uh, parts of a process and look for the ROI on it, and then forget everything else about that process. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes, you know, and I think what, what Mindy was alluding to when she said also the, you know, about the culture being how this, this happens is like, and, and how this aligns with your story, I think for me is that the com combining the two is that sometimes we, or, or companies and business owners and leaders and executives are so focused on the bottom line, which is important, you know, as, 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 as entrepreneurs and as, um, you know, as entrepreneurs, as well as, you know, employees for other companies, you know, I've had, I've had, um, the, the opportunity to be both, uh, you know, or all of them, right? to be an employee, to be an entrepreneur within a company, starting a new segment and, and also, um, you know, creating my own companies. Yeah. The finances are absolutely key, absolutely important. Uh, but without people, and without people that are motivated and engaged, um, you know, you're not going to get the right results. You're just going to have either turnover or a disengaged employee. And, you know, I think engagement in the U.S., I've, I've read a Gallup, Gallup has a poll that they put out every couple of years about employee engagement. And uh, for the longest time, it was about 66% of U.S. employees are disengaged. 85% uh, of global employees are disengaged, right? And that means only, you know, in the U.S., um, a third of your employees are actually want to be there. And, and, you know, globally, that's only 15% of your employees that you really want to be there. But the, the thing to take away from that is what do your employees produce? What is a, what is a happy, engaged employee, uh, produce? What are they looking for? They're the ones that are going to be more active and looking for ways to save money or improve processes or, you know, help the company out versus those that are disengaged are going to go and say, eh, I'm getting a paycheck. Doesn't matter to me. Right. And it's unfortunate that the majority of employees are those employees. So back to what Mindy was saying about culture, it's absolutely important um, because without it, you know, the number one cost of any business for the most part, for most businesses is going to be um, labor costs. Correct. And that's a good, that's a good question. Also, it's like, how, how do you, Define your culture and, and how to, uh, actually make it part of your process. I mean, yeah, I, I certainly understand in a, in a startup business, you just have such engagement because everybody's willing to go. It's just, Hey, this is a good thing. It's going to work. You know, 
everyone has this great hope. And I, I think I think cultures have to have hope. I mean, hope is, is critical to human beings. I mean, without hope, what is there? Just misery, correct? So uh, the, the, so I, I think hope and engagement are, are crucial elements. And um, that's, you know, I, and, and that's, you know, when I, when I see culture, sometimes I, I walk up to some of these tech startups and I, I don't know if they really know what culture is because I, I see the snack bar, you know, I see the, the Wayfair, you know, uh, you know, sofas and, and, you know, the Ikea furniture and all this other stuff, but I really don't know what the culture is quite by just walking in. It just seems eclectic. It seems like no cult. I mean, it's like the anti-culture, if that makes sense. It's just, uh, it's like, let's just make this eclectic and that's our culture. Yep. And, and most companies, that's what they do. Right. And, and they, and, and usually culture is an afterthought. And, and I think in order for companies to truly last and to leave a lasting impression with their customers, right? Because without customers, most companies aren't viable for very long. You have to have that the people, especially the people that are front facing or customer facing, really be engaged and really be really believe and have that hope that you're talking about in what the company is out to accomplish or in their future or in their ability to make a difference, right? What's their purpose? you know, within that company. So all of those are important in order to have an excellent customer experience and ultimately continue to produce revenue and margin, right? Yeah, and, and here's another question for you. Does, does culture change? Yes. It does. It should, it should, shouldn't it? It should be organic. The leadership impacts that significantly. It depends on, on what that leader is going to be. And those leaders, leaders are going to be, are they going to be a place that, is this going to be fun? I remember when the millennials first came out, it was like, oh, they just want to play. You know, it's got to be a culture that everyone can buy into and feel like they can contribute to. It has to be welcoming. Yeah. And, and there's great examples of that. You know, we had a recent example of can cultures change and can leadership make a difference? Absolutely. You know, the recent example was the Super Bowl 2021, right? Tom Brady went from one team to another team and they had a new coach and he brought over other people and they made a team that wasn't a Super Bowl contender a Super Bowl winner in one year. So it's absolutely leadership is what drives the culture starts at the top. So uh, when you have a great culture, leadership is helping drive that and maintaining that because People are looking up to these leaders to help run the business, but also make the business the best for the people, right? It's not about the business, all, just the business and the bottom line. Any general will tell you in the military that it's about their troops and making sure the troops are, are, are healthy and happy and well-maintained and because that's going to make a difference when it comes to the time when they're need to play their role in whatever that is, if that's a humanitarian role or a, a battlefield war, you know, or a battlefield situation, right? So it's all about the people in, in, in my book is that, it, it, you know, if you don't have happy employees, you just aren't going to have a great product. Yeah, you know, I haven't met an office yet that basically needed culture. It's always the people. You know, it's kind of funny around around here with my team, uh, I always practice a little anagram here. It's called UC, and it's basically unity, commitment, empathy, and engagement. And I tried to get my people to really concentrate on that and, and be aware of that in the very beginning of the meeting. So that way you kind of understand these things because we all get going so fast. Sometimes we don't slow down to really understand each other enough, you know, and then we all have our biases. We don't necessarily, we think we understand. You ever, you ever seen two people doing this and they, one, one is this, it's, you know, it's the biggest, my worst arguments. I mean, knock down yelling, screaming arguments or misunderstandings, misunderstandings. And I regret every single one of them a hundred percent. That's, you know, that's, that's interesting. So cult, culture is about the people, is about the people, nothing to do with the office. Although the office is one more element about how you tell those people that you care or don't care. Correct. Yeah. You know, we were, we were talking about, Rhonda and I were talking about generations that's coming from, you know, early 1900s to even now. And it's kind of interesting because you know, at one time we worked in big offices. The offices were on a different floor. 
there was a manager who had one office, and then he was in a bank of desks with in trays and out trays, ashtrays, and a typewriter. And that's the way the workforce was. It was just a bank of open desks. There was no electricity. There was nothing. And you know what? But that, those days, we were coming out of the Great Depression, and you know what? All we cared about is having a job. That's what made us feel good, is to get a paycheck. Then eventually, we started becoming more successful, more fruitful. We go into the 60s. There was a lot of design back then. And then even into the 70s, we still were pretty carefree. And then, of course, you know, the 80s, right in the middle of the 80s, we had that great real estate crash, which was doomed to happen again sometime later, a decade later. And it did. Yes, and it did. And it hit hard. That was, you know, the 80s for me was whenever all of a sudden people didn't, people charged so much more in the 70s than they ever did in the 80s. All of a sudden, people discounted prices. Now, there were margins. In the 90s, it was kind of interesting because and at that particular time, if you saw somebody that had talent and you want them, you just paid them. Then we come in into the later 90s, into the 2000s, and we have millennials. They don't want to work as hard as their fathers or grandfathers because they saw them bust their butt and basically never saw their kids, worked real hard. Later in life when they retired, then they got to have a relationship with them. So they decided that they didn't want to have those things. They wanted to have work, but they also want to do fun things and, and have more life. So that's what we're kind of running into now. The tech started this whole concept of Google that has the sleeping pods, or is it Apple? No, it's Apple. Apple has the sleeping pods, the napping pods. Um, I have to tell you, that's beyond my understanding. I can't imagine sleeping in an office. Then again, though, I can certainly imagine sitting in my chair and taking a five-minute nap. I can certainly do you know, that, no, no issue at all. But to sit in the pod would make me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what it is. It's just, it would make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and now we have, what's the next generation? Generation Z. Z. Okay. Now, from what I hear, they want to be mentored. They want someone, tell them what to do. Tell them how to do it. And, and millennials, the example that I've heard before was millennials have been you know, told it doesn't matter if you win or lose. And they've been told how to do something right up to this point because they've had so much involvement with their parents and they really tell them how to solve the problem right up to this point. And so a lot of corporate America now are looking for the students that have a 3.5, not a 4.0, because they want somebody that actually struggled in college. They want somebody that probably had to work and couldn't make good grades because they had to work and go to college because they find them to be more driven. A teacher I was on the plane with flying back from uh, Boston, she told me she, there was a documentary that she watched. And this was about a professor at a college and she every year that the millennials would show up with their parents on a Friday and then they would be there Saturday and then they would be there Sunday then they were there the whole week and the next weekend before they left so there's this umbilical cord that they have and the kids are going into the real world they're ill-equipped the real world is a little bit harder than that so these are some of the generational things drive what's available because my generation yeah if we had a nice wood desk we felt a little bit special but it was about getting the work done and um and that seems to be less prevalent. But yeah, I have to say, my son has, has been working for me for the last three years when he first came to work for me. And I told Rolando about this, pretty impactful to me. Probably the most significant impactful things ever happened to me. He came in after about two weeks of training. He says, Dad, you know, you really have a lot of training. So I'm able to come up to speed pretty good. That's, that's really nice. He says, you know the reason I never wanted to come to work for you? And I said, no, not really. And he goes, I thought I had to work just like you. And I, well, I did a 360 in my head and looked at myself and go, I know what he's talking about now. I know I knew exactly what he was talking about because I didn't work probably yeah, stupidly and, and, hard. And you're absolutely right on, on these things here with as people realize that each generation seems to kind of have a different attitude towards work. My parents were the same way. They were, yeah, I would have called them workaholics, but I still call them that. I wanted to work as hard as they did and I wanted to live more. I mean, I think I've traveled more internationally than my folks have and, and I've made travel a key part of what I have. But I also find myself having a lot of the habits that I got from them which are, you know, if I, something needs to get done, I'm up early in the morning to get it done, or I'm up late at night finishing what needs, what I said I was going to do. So I think, I think it's those things that, that, uh, you know, where we all see when somebody's working a lot and we say like, I didn't want to work as hard as my parents. And yet kind of, I kind of am. And then I kind of still look down on the, the next generation below me going, hey, where's your guys' work ethic? <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, yeah. yeah. And, and I think I think millennials are going to basically bring on a generation of really hard workers because their kids are going to see them and they're going to think, God, all you cared about was not working. Because they say every fourth generation resets. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds like it does. Pretty interesting. It kind of explains our approach to the office now. But now people are really starting to look at the office. Still, we always have a little bit of lag because small businesses are the ones working real hard trying to 
keep the payroll made, keep the you know keep the sales up, everything else. A larger company can have a fluctuation either way. Their measure is held by stockholders. So if they want to, you know, if in the chairman board, they're going to come in. They're not making the profits. They're going to cut a bunch of people in real estate out. And that's all there is to it. And it certainly makes their stock go down, but it actually will help them go back up short. So there's a different approach there. A publicly traded company to me is, is, is a company that's really, it's not about the company as much as it's about the stock. So the company will do as much as it needs to, so that way the stock value will go up, and then that's what it's all about. So, but these small small companies. Here's here's the thing. Here's something for you guys. What would you suggest to small businesses? And I'm talking about you know from 10 to 50 employees. What would you suggest are some of the things when they're looking for a new space that they should consider doing? Is there something? Is there like the top five things or top one thing? Anything that you can think of? I mean, that's from a business leader point of view. That's a a great question, and it's uh, probably the top a topic for a full podcast. But I've learned in my uh, analysis of, of studying work and how people work, because since I left Dell, I've devoted my work to getting more people to spend time outside and in the outdoors. And I've studied all the benefits of working outside uh, and how it improves your sleep, how you know, it improves movement and sitting really bad for people at the amount of time. So when you're asking, what would I look for in an office building? Was number one, do we need an office, right? Do we have jobs where we are going to perform better or meet the customer requirements and the business requirements individually at, at our own places, or do we need a space to do that? If the answer is we need a space, how do we configure the space to have the different types of work uh, environments that people need? Because number one, when you're working, you're not doing the same job all day long. You may be doing, if you're in an analysis, let's say you're a CPA, uh, you know, and you, you look at numbers. Yeah, you look at numbers, but you also have meetings. And then you also have calls with clients and you also have looking forward about business planning. You know, is it tax time? Is it tax season, right? What do we need to do to ramp up our staff? So all of those types of different types of work that we do throughout the day is not just one type. Answering emails is going to be different than having meetings. And there's different work environments that suit that. So can you be as effective in a space that allows you when it's time to concentrate, I can close the door I can, or I can go into this private room and I can concentrate and get the what we call the head down work done that needs to be done, the day-to-day tasks that we need to do uninterrupted with good acoustics and good, you know, and, and an environment that allows me to focus. Um, because every time you lose focus, it takes almost three times as long. You know, a, a two-second misfocus is going to cause you, uh, or five seconds of misfocus is going to cause you 20 seconds to get back to what you were doing. So it's, it's that type of stuff. So can you build the right environments for the different kind of work that you need? Because you're going to have meetings. You're going to have time you need to get work done. You have time you need client interface. You have a space that's welcoming clients, right? And uh, where you can have that interaction you need to to sell your product or your, your service. You know, there's so much to think about when saying, okay, how do I choose an office space? Um, you know, I think my my top one or two that I just mentioned is, do I need a space? And does that space have the environments that are conducive to having people being effective in their work? So, so And that's not a one-size-fits-all. That doesn't mean that you put everybody around a table and hope that they get their work done. That's just not the way people do work. And putting everybody in their own offices may not be conducive to collaboration, right? And, and so all happen. And so I think there's a lot to consider that when you start peeling that onion of when do what do what do I look for when I'm when I'm choosing an office space or a space for us to, to work and get work done for my company or workspace. There's so many different factors that are part of that that if you really want to impact employee engagement and culture and have happy customers and happy a great customer experience, there's a whole lot of thought that needs to go into what's going to be the right fit for my business, for my finances, for my people, and for my customer experience. And not in that order, right? Like, you know, you don't have a business or finances if you don't have customers. When I was working my last company, they were really focused on employee engagement. And so we worked with Gensler. We worked with all sorts of different groups that you would not think would be part of employee engagement. But people that, that go to companies, they don't want to be in an ugly office. They want to have smoothies and they want to have all and that for a while there was really what was focused on when you were attracting new employees. And they wanted to be able to 
they have them. They wanted to be able to just go play foosball, get something out of their brain and be able to go back later. <laughs> it's, it's a different time than even like five, seven years ago. Yeah, I guess it's also understanding what your what your business model is and, and what your level of creativity is because I've known creative people in my years and some of them, you know, actually they have to change the furniture in their office sometimes. They get mentally stuck and they have to change the furniture and that's really not much different than what, you know, what people do in their house. You know, I'm sure when you change your furniture in your house a few times, correct? Yeah. yeah. So I think because you get stuck and you just have to do something that you know feel comfortable. And that's that's what it gets down to because I've gone to some places and I, I like the open plan. Let's talk about the open plan. Yeah. What do you think about the open plan? No. Yeah. That's exactly why Cisco was bringing in Gensler and people like that. It was like, okay, we want to be cool, you know, because we're an old company <laughs> and we want to shine. But at the same time, how do we make that happen? And so that's when the, the partners with some of the design companies came in. Just fast. I, I thought that was brilliant by them. Oh, that's great. That, was, that must have been an amazing experience because to see things like that unveil is just is kind of great. Because, you know, Gensler came up with, I, kind of, I thought, the uh, the four quadrant, you know, work environment, which they, they basically came up with, uh, there's training, I believe is one of them. There's socializing. That's another one. There's focus and collaboration. I believe those were the four things that they really focused on. And they even developed software that can give you metrics if you really use it right. And nowadays, they even have sensors that they can put in rooms. They can tell how many times that you sit in a chair, how many times you stand up. And then some, in some cases, they, they actually do it with cameras. And the whole technology is really changing rapidly to where you can get all that information. Of course, some of the people that are in the office environment are not really keen on all these sensors going on. Because there's a lot of people that get a little bit, you know, wigged out about knowing every single thing, you know, because, oh, they can tell how many times a day I actually got up and went to the bathroom or took a smoke or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> but, you, but, you know, I've always thought that the open plan ruined one specific thing, focus, focus. You can't focus in a bench of open desks. And every time I've ever walked in one of those situations, I think, I think in those situations, that's when you definitely want some people to work at home. So that way you can focus. And think of it this way. A lot of restaurants are open floor plan, right? So uh, when you walk into a restaurant, you know, one of the things that you, one of the things that your senses first pick up is the amount of noise level, right? And it's open floor, you know, people are in different tables, but it's open, right? Because of that, your noise levels go up and it's hard to concentrate sometimes on when you're at a restaurant that's too loud. The table next to you is being too loud to have a conversation, right? So what you're saying is that that's a big day killer, right? Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah. Well, I would like a booth, please. Can I have a booth? Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, it, it, you know that, that the acoustics are one of these things that people don't realize that open floor plan, regardless how modern it looks or whatever, it's going. That's why everybody's gotten got Exactly. When, you, when, when I go into these open plans, everyone has earbuds in. Everyone does. So, I mean, I, I certainly I certainly think that it's, it might be an overcorrection because if you remember in the 80s and the 90s, we had these huge cubicles. They were like 8 by 8s or 8 by 12s. And then we even had a meeting table in them with a chair and stuff like that. And it was just like enormous. Slowly but surely, I think at the end of, of the 90s and certainly beginning of 2000, we started to come up with a 6 by 6 footprint. That was kind of the footprint. And the interesting thing is, is most people don't know this, but the footprint that you need for a 6 by 6 cubicle is no different than you need for bench. They, they assume since now you don't have that return and you don't have those panels that you can put so much more people together. But at what particular point are they getting out of their desk and bumping into the person behind them? Because, you know, code says three foot eight inches. That's pretty much national code for aisles. Yeah. I mean, when you're close to an office, though, you want to make it four or four foot six. Why? Because it's heavy traffic. So you create your heavy traffic ops. But minimum code is is that three foot eight inches. And I've seen some people actually do that with benching. And that if you're you're crammed in there. And and I think I think real estate and also real estate prices have gone up so much over the past five years that people are saying, can we get more people in here? There's a, you know <laughs> the economic conditions also drive your ability to create a proper office office environment. I, I I wonder what that future is going to be because if I can do my homework or if I, I can work in my office and you give me some kind of stipend or something like that, I can see everybody on Zoom, right? I don't need to be there physically with, with people. So I'm, I'm just curious to see how far we'll go with that, especially as the pandemic continues. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to have some kind of, and I've seen a ton of it, you know, there's all this in, you know, hiring research or intelligence that you can basically hire the right person because, I mean, if I, if I could have 10 people like you, I wouldn't worry about it. 
But if I could have 10 people like Rolando, I wouldn't have to worry about it. If I could have 10 people like me, I wouldn't have to worry about it. The reality of the situation is the closer the unemployment gets to 1%, the less that we have to pick from. And Austin has been riddled with that. I think Austin, at one time, I don't know if this is a true number because I don't know how it can be negative, but I heard Austin was at a negative. Yeah. I heard something similar that, that yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was, it was very low. Um, for the part where it's single digit and it, it's pretty much those that wanted to work. Yeah. So, yeah, because one time in Oklahoma, um, there was a company, it was, it was, it was a spinoff of Citigroup and, uh, it was, it was called, uh, Veriquest Financial. They ended up getting bought by a hedge fund. But I went up and, and, and met the guy and talked to him and we had lunch afterwards and he's like, you know, I told him this, I remember hearing the unemployment in Oklahoma and this was probably back in, 2004, 2005, I said, it was like at 2% or something like that. I said, yeah, that must be really good. Your unemployment is, is, is so low. He goes quite the opposite. I said, well, please explain to me. He says, because what we're getting to pick from is basically the, the bottom of the barrel. And I said, you know, I never thought about it that way. So, um, it actually creates a talent war, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it, because of the shortage of talent, um, to get the best and the brightest, you're going to have to keep, have to, keep, pay, a lot have to pay a lot more off for a whole lot more perks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, that, that it, it does having a low unemployment number isn't necessarily great because you're not getting the best and the brightest, um, talent pool that you're trying to pull from. You're getting what's there and what's available. Wait, and here's also another thing that I've noticed is, is really very interesting because even with all this, uh, you know, you know, Gensler's involvement into, you know, and not only Gensler, there's, there's so many other architect firms, but Gensler is probably one of the, the most prominent one. Um, they come into all these companies and they give them these great layouts and they tell them exactly why they'll work and everything. But why is it that millennials, when you look at their resume, they bounce around every two to three years to another job? There is no, there is no, uh, retention there at all. As a matter of fact, the hiring matrix is, is like this. They, if, if you stayed at a company for, you know, five to 10 years, what's wrong with you? Why did you stay there so long? You know, did, you know, because I mean, in the nineties, I saw this a lot. I saw if you had your shining star, you know, your, 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 basically your, your lead guy, right? When he left to another company, two weeks later, he was taking half the staff with him. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So now if you stay at a company for too long, you might just screw up your chances to be hired by somebody else because if you move around a lot, then they assume that you have just done nothing but move from company to company and improve your position, which is true. And so if you've not, then they kind of pass you by, which goes against everything that I ever thought. Because in my generation, if you're with a company for you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you're a solid employee. You're committed. Mm -hmm. That's not the story anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> No, no, and 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 that was one of those changes, right? You know, our folks started in a company, retired with the company. That was that was a, a badge of honor. Um, or you know, I think you know, you change careers uh, maybe two to five times. You know, um, you know, and, and, and that that group, right, was the um, it was the baby boomer. And then every group kind of has just shifted a little bit more, and now to where, yeah, two or three years of tenure to move on to your next company. Um, I think there's some very positives about that. It allows people to experience, you know, different cultures, allows for growth. Um, at the same time, it's harder on these companies, you know, the knowledge that they, you know, the, that they've invested in, in grooming or growing this employee for that time is now gone, right? So, it, you know, it, it's actually, you know, and, and ultimately who pays for that is the consumer, right? Because the companies have to, to pass on those charges in order to be viable to the consumer. So good and bad of it and, you know, pros and cons and everything. And, you know, and I think, you know, over time, like you said, there's going to be a reset and people are want ability, but, you know, companies don't offer pension programs anymore. Very few. No pension program so there's no there goes the incentive to stay with the company for as long as you have i think city governments and state local governments city state and local governments still kind of offer some of that but i think more and more that's starting to disappear and therefore because of competitive people don't want to go work for the city you know for city state local governments because you know they don't pay as well as the, the private sector or you know that, that you know these big companies so, so you know, there's this trade-off, right? And the, the higher talented employees are going where the higher wages are. Aren't. So, you know, it it all kind of starts to come together. Going, oh, no wonder it takes the governments forever to get things done. Well, 
sometimes, sometimes, you know, they need to pay a little bit more to get the, the better talent. Well, Mindy, would you say that money is the solution and the problem at the same time? <laughs> oh, I like money. It's always, it's always the solution. <laughs> <laughs> it's always. Until it messes up something, and then you go, damn, you know? Because, I mean, we're a power-driven society is the reason I say that. And that's, you know, the minute that we find a way to make money, then and it starts to make sense, and everyone, all the... You know, all the vultures get there and, and peck it until it's dry, just like the mortgage industry. That's the way we are. You know, that's why stocks are basically run by hedge funds. But now that's starting to change. I don't know if you heard about recently, the millennials in the Robinhood app brought GameStop from $4 a share all the way up to $300 a share because they kept on buying it. And the hedge funds were trying to short it because they, they were sure it was going to go to nothing. They lost $7 billion. One hedge fund lost $7 billion. $7 billion. And all because a bunch of millennials on an app that basically gives you no fees for trading exists. It's called Robinhood. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and now that we that business has to adapt, right? Because I, I think that was a great show of that there's still democracy in, mm -hmm. in finance. Well, you know what? If organized, you're 100% right. Because, you know, if we could, if everyone could basically for a week stop buying gas, we would own the price of the gas stations. Right. But we don't. But we don't. But every now and then we get together and we really unite well. Yep. And then we go, and then we fade to black. So it's it's like. People are hungry to make innovative, right? It's innovation. What happened in the example you talked about with Robin Hood and GameStop's at stock is that people got creative and innovative and said, hey, we can can fight big hedge funds, we can have our voices heard, and we can make a profit doing it, which a lot of them did. So where is that going to leave GameStop at the end, right? It was, oh, know, GameStop, went to, GameStop is, is down around 70 bucks or 60 bucks a share now. It's still more than what it should be. It doesn't match its value sheet, but the, you know, the CEO of Chewy is now, uh, he bought 12% of the shares and he basically is on the on the board now. So I'm sure GameStop is, is going to turn into something different because they're kind of brick and mortar, so they need to convert more to digital and uh, then turn their, their brick and mortar into maybe place for gamers to come in and play games, but uh, they're, they've got to change their model because they they have become dated. At one time they were the they were the slickest thing around. But this brings me back to Bitcoin. Remember what I told you about Bitcoin, right? Yeah. You see, the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is it doesn't it's not subject to any of the hedge funds or any of these guys. It's you know, let's face it, money only has value because we perceive it to have value. That's it. Stocks have value. Why? Because we perceive it to have value. Bitcoin has value because we perceive it to have value. And now it's heading that way. And I told him, I said, don't sell your Bitcoin. I said, he said, he was talking about cash. And I said, it's proven that it's never going to go below 20,000. And, and actually, I said, it's probably going to get to 50, didn't I say that, before the end of the year? Yeah. And where is it now? I think this morning, I think it was 47 or 48. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the interesting thing is because now Bitcoin is this pure prune field that isn't tainted by the big hedge funds. It's going to happen pretty quick because now the hedge funds are starting to buy it. Elon Musk took $1.5 million and bought Bitcoin. Bought Bitcoin and instantly he did two things. It caused his stock to go up and it caused Bitcoin to go up. So you can thank Elon Musk for your thing. But now my next prediction prediction for you is is I think by the end of the year Bitcoin is going to be over seventy five thousand dollars. Well then I won't tell. <laughs> Remember I said check every three check every what three months check and just look at it. But I believe it's really now it's at forty six five forty six thousand five hundred per bit. Yep. So you know, it's, it's you see what happens is it's a safe haven right now because it's it's basically anybody can go in there. It's hard to trade in the stock market unless you're just going to buy a company and stay in it long, be, you know, be a swing trader at best. But, uh, you know, the hedge funds own it because they can do these transactions instantaneously. They got, you know, they got robots that do these, you know, transactions and wait for lows and highs to come. It's, it, there's almost not even a human factor in it. So those hedge funds actually own the transactions. They can, they can make money just at a blink of an eye. So we really don't have a, you know, a good way to do it. And that's why the Robinhood app came into play for, you know, no cost transactions. But there's still a cost. It's kind of funny how that always ends up being a cost. Yeah, nothing's free. But uh, Bitcoin, and now, because now Elon is actually looking into the future, is using Bitcoin to what? Accept payment for, for testing. Yeah, that means that it could very well, I'd say in the next five to 10 years, be an acceptable currency across other industries. Can you imagine other businesses accepting Bitcoin as payment? That's huge because now we're not even using our dollars anymore. We're using a different currency that actually inflates at a faster rate than inflation. And so people are going to really, really stick to that. And I can't encourage you enough to buy Bitcoin. I wish I had more money in it. I'm not going to buy at $46,000 a Bitcoin. <laughs> Well, if you knew it was going to be fifty thousand, I mean, if you knew it was going to be a hundred thousand a year, well, my, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah.
Well, you see, so you're just saying, yeah. I mean, but but also there's there's also like Ethereum is which is the cryptocurrency, but it's also the platform which cryptocurrency is actually uh, monitored with is actually used. So that right there, they're expecting that to get to thirty thousand dollars in the next five years, and they're expecting Bitcoin to be at three hundred thousand in the next five years. And, and what happens is is as this you know it's kind of interesting. I've, I've done a lot of research lately, but there's thing called uh, called Fibonacci uh, triangle. Are you familiar with those? Yeah. yeah. Where it goes up and it goes like it goes like that. And when you, you see a pattern of uh, two or three of those in a particular stock buying pattern, it shows an indication of a trend growth. So and Bitcoin has it all over the place. It has it all over the place. That's what that's what a lot of these swing traders and option traders actually look for. They look for that for that surge and they look for that Fibonacci you know, triangle because it's a naturally occurring triangle in, in nature. So, well, guys, it, it looks like that we're getting pretty close to our you know hour and I know you need to go, but this has been really, really great. I really appreciate you both taking the time and it's nice to just sit and chat with people. I mean, I, I need to have more conversations like these. I really, really do. <laughs> That's the whole purpose, right? We were starting to have a whole lot of conversations and we just said, hey, you know, we had a, we had a, record our session because it's such good stuff. So I'm hoping that we continue uh, to, to, to talk, touch on interesting um, topics as well as continue to kind of move the needle forward on helping people think differently around integrating nature into the workplace about, um, you know, being more outdoors versus uh, or utilizing the outdoors more, bringing the outside in, you know, into wherever they're working, whether it's home or whether it's in an office, you know, making sure that they take those breaks and they don't overwork because yeah americans tend to work more but they're actually not as productive right when you actually right. think getting done americans don't own productivity when it comes to the world employees and people around the world and those companies and those cultures and those locations that have more vacations built in actually produce more so on a per employee so it's, it's those types of things that i think are going to be great topics for our upcoming podcasts about how actually taking more breaks creating more nature will have you even happier, healthier, more productive in everything you do, whether it be for work, whether it be for your own personal productivity, the things you have to accomplish or um, or to earn a living on it. So. I think you're right because I think, you know, if, what we're talking about is wellness. We're talking about wellness in the workplace. And I think there's there's such a concern for that now. You know, for the first time in years, I've, I've heard of actually big corporations hiring a nutritionist to actually, you know, prepare meals you know, for the people in the place. So, and we know that, that bad health, like we talked about the other day, was a $360 you know, billion dollar your loss to businesses, yeah. you know, so we, we, we will definitely talk more. And Mindy, I would welcome you any time to show up. Um, you know, you're definitely a very beautiful woman and you have a better contrast to this podcast than, than we hear, you know, Rolando here. <laughs> you know, we need, we need this decoration. So anytime that you want to come on board, I'll always send you the invite. If you show up great and if not, that's fine too. Well, guys, y'all have a great evening. Thank you very much for your time. Well, that's the end of the show, folks. Thank you very much for being here. The big takeaway for me is that no matter who you are, as Rolando mentioned, whatever your age is, we all want more time. We want more time. We want to be productive. We want to be efficient. These things are important to us. I think they've been important to us for thousands of years. Well, I really felt like that we could have gone on and on and on, but all good things must come to an end. Thank you very much for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any comments, please send them to squidsoup512 at gmail.com. Now I will do my very best to respond to each and every one. Thank you very much. Peace out.